Welcome, everybody. Good morning. Um, happy Valentine's Day. Pookie, pookie, what is that, Andrew? <clears throat> I was with my grandchildren uh, this weekend, and of course, we had to tell some Valentine jokes. What did the chef give his wife for Valentine's? A hug and a quiche, of course. What do you call two young lovebirds? Tweethearts. <laughs> How many of you will be celebrating Valentine's Day in some way, uh, either with flowers or chocolates or a gift or a card? Raise your hand. Okay, a lot of you. Okay. How many of you understand the historical roots of Valentine's? Raise your hand. Far fewer of you. Okay, all right. Well, since I'm not giving a Valentine's Day message today, I thought I'd share a little bit of its history. So I'm just going to read this to you. The Catholic Church recognizes at least three different saints named Valentine or Valentinus, all of whom were martyred. Isn't that a pleasant thought? One legend contends that Valentine was a priest who served during the 3rd century in Rome when Emperor Claudius II decided that single men made better soldiers than those with wives and families, he outlawed marriage for young men. Valentine, realizing the injustice of the decree, defiled Claudius, defied Claudius, and continued to perform marriages for young lovers in secret. When Valentine's actions were discovered, Claudius ordered that he be put to death. <clears throat> Other stories suggest that Valentine may have been killed for attempting to help Christians escape harsh Roman prisons, where they were often beaten and tortured. According to one legend, an imprisoned Valentine actually sent the first Valentine greeting himself after he fell in love with a young girl, possibly the jailer's daughter, who visited him during his confinement. Before his death, it is alleged that he wrote a letter signed from your valentine, an expression that, still, that we still use today. Although the truth behind valentine legend is smirky, is murky, not smirky, murky, the stories all emphasize his appeal as a sympathetic, heroic, and mostly romantic figure. By the Middle Ages, perhaps thanks to his reputation, valentine would become one of the most popular saints in England and in France. There you have it. Happy Valentine's Day. <clears throat> well, it's an honor to share with you this morning. My name is Joel Alberti. I'm one of the pastors here at City Church. As a church now, we are starting a new series called Entering the Land. This is a series of studies in the book of Joshua. And this is the fourth message in the series. Today's message is entitled, Qualifications for Conquest. And it covers chapters 4 and 5 of Joshua. I'm going to begin by reading a little narrative uh, summary to provide a context for today's message. It has been 40 years since Israel was liberated from their captivity in Egypt. Because of their rebellion, an entire generation has died off. Their leader, Moses, is dead. Under their new leader, Joshua, Israel prepares for a new beginning. God's people prepare to cross the Jordan River. 
On the other side of that river is the land that God promised. The Jordan River is at flood stage. According to God's direction, Joshua tells the priest to take the Ark of the Covenant into the river. As their feet touched the water's edge, the water stopped flowing and it piled up into a heap. In the middle of the river, the priest stood firm on dry ground as the whole nation of Israel crossed the river. As they were crossing, Joshua instructed 12 men, one from each of the 12 tribes of Israel, to carry a stone from the middle of the river where the priest stood to the other side where they would make a memorial. After the last person had safely crossed the Jordan, the priest carried the ark to the other side. As soon as their feet touched dry land, the river immediately returned to flood stage. Following the crossing of the Jordan, Joshua reinstituted the covenant of circumcision, and the whole nation of Israel celebrated Passover. From that time on, daily manna stopped, and they began to eat the produce from the new land. As Joshua looked over Jericho, he had a divine encounter. He met a man with a drawn sword in his hand who happened to be the commander of the Lord's armies. Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence and said, What what message does my Lord have for his servant? The commander replied, Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Qualifications for Conquest As Israel begins to enter this new land, there are some unique ways that God prepares them and qualifies them for the journey ahead. And through this message, I'm also suggesting that these are the very ways that God is preparing and qualifying us as we get ready to enter the new land as well. In this passage, I see seven ways that God is qualifying his people. Number one, to be qualified for conquest we need to be focusing on God's faithfulness. As I mentioned in the narrative, Joshua appointed men from the 12 tribes to carry a stone of remembrance from the middle of the river where the priest stood with the ark to the other side where they would set it up as as an altar, as a memorial. I'm reading from Joshua 4, 21. He said to the Israelites, in the future, when your descendants ask their parents, what do these stones mean? Tell them Israel crossed the Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the Jordan before you until you had crossed over. The Lord your God did to the Jordan what he had done to the Red Sea when he dried it up before us until we had all crossed over. When he, excuse me, he did this so that all the peoples of the earth might know that the hand of the Lord is powerful and so that you might always fear the Lord your God. So this memorial that they made of these stones was created or erected to serve as an important reminder of God's faithfulness. If you'll recall, God made a covenant with Abraham hundreds of years earlier that he would give his descendants the land of Canaan, the very land on which Abraham was standing when God made that promise. This is the land that they're getting ready to go into. And by this memorial of stones, God is saying to his people and to the generations that follow, I am a promise-keeping God. I have kept my promises, and I will keep my promises. At the end of the book of Joshua, 
If you skip ahead all the way to the end, after they've defeated most of their enemies and they're occupying the land and they've divided the territory among the tribes, Joshua says this in Joshua 21. Not one of all the Lord's good promises to the house of Israel failed. Every one of them was fulfilled. God is a promise-keeping God. However, we are a forgetful people. We often forget and need to be reminded over and over again about God's faithfulness. The entire book of Deuteronomy, Moses wrote that book as a remembrance. These are the things the Lord did to bring you out of Egypt. These are the ways that you need to remember God. This is one of the reasons that you need to be obedient to God. The book of Psalms that David wrote is a constant reminder about the goodness of God. Toward the end of Peter's life, he urged the saints to remember the things that he had taught them. Three times in four verses, he urges them to remember. And I'm quoting from 2 Peter chapter 1. So I will always remind you, notice the underline, of these things. Even though you know them and are firmly established in the truth, you now have. I think it is right to refresh your memory as long as I live in the tent of this body because I know that I will soon put it aside as our Lord Jesus has made clear to me. And I will make every effort to see that after my departure, you will always be able to remember these things. We need to remember the goodness of God, the faithfulness of God. As Israel enters the promised land, they will face many obstacles and many intimidating enemies that will cause them to fear. They will need to remind each other that God is faithful, that he's a promise-keeping God, that he will do as he said. And as we get ready to enter this land of revival and awakening, there will be many obstacles and many enemies that will cause us to doubt and fear. And one of the best things that we can do for each other is to remind each other often of God's faithfulness, of the many ways that he's answered prayer, of the many ways that he has acted on our behalf. The act of remembering will keep our focus on God instead of the negative things that are all around us. The act of remembering will fuel our faith and keep us from giving in to fear. To enter the promised land, we need to keep our focus on God's faithfulness. All right, number two. To be qualified for conquest, we need to be meditating on the miraculous. An entire generation passed away while the Israelites wandered in the desert. They heard of all the miraculous stories about how God so, how, so powerfully brought them out of their bondage in Egypt. But now they were seeing the same power with their own eyes. The God who had parted the Red Sea 40 years earlier had now parted the Jordan River. They experienced the miraculous power of God themselves. And in a few days, they would see the miraculous power of God displayed again when they go against Jericho, and God brings down the walls of Jericho with a shout and a blast of a trumpet. Joshua said that one of the reasons that we're constructing this stone memorial is so that all of the peoples of the earth might know that the hand of the Lord is powerful. It is good to meditate on the fact that God is a God of miracles. City Church is a miracle of God. The way he brought these two very diverse churches together is a miracle. 
And the way that God has worked in our finances these last 12 or 10 years has been miraculous as well. We need to talk about God's miracles. How many of you have seen God do a miracle in your life or in the life of somebody you know? Raise your hand. All over the place, hands are raised. Can you imagine how your strength, how your faith would be strengthened if we stopped the service right now and formed a line over here and allowed you to come up one at a time and share your amazing stories about God's work in your life? This is why it's so important that we make room for testimonies because every story is a living illustration of God's miraculous work. God's people needed to be They needed to see a display of God's power to have confidence to move into the promised land. And similarly, we need to be reminded that God is a God of the miraculous. And we need to cry out for more of a manifestation of his power so that we can move into the promised land with confidence. I think the prayer of Habakkuk, chapter 3, verse 2, is still very important. It says, Lord, we have heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds, Lord. Repeat them in our day. In our time, make them known. In wrath, remember mercy. In order to enter the promised land, we need to meditate on the miraculous. Number three, to be qualified for conquest, we need to be internalizing our identity. Shortly after Israel crossed the Jordan River, At God's direction, Joshua renewed the covenant of circumcision. Now, the ordinance of circumcision was a sign of a covenant that God made with Abraham to enter into relationship with him and all of his descendants. Circumcision was to be an outward physical sign of one's willingness to obey God and to be identified as his people. Now, the men who came out of Egypt were circumcised, But because of their rebellion and disobedience, they died in the wilderness because they broke covenant with God. But the next generation of men who were raised in the wilderness had not been circumcised. So as an act of renewing this covenant, they willingly submitted to circumcision. On the threshold of a new beginning into the promised land, their circumcision signified their desire to be obedient to God and to be identified as as his people. The Bible says that they remained in camp until they were healed. Circumcision is painful. When I was circumcised as a newborn, I couldn't walk for an entire year. Just seeing if you were awake out there. Someone asked me the latest age someone could be circumcised. I asked why. He said he just wanted to know the cutoff date. Sorry. (laughs) Under the old covenant, children were circumcised shortly after they were born. But under the new covenant, because of the work of Christ, we are circumcised the moment we're born again. The old religious observance of circumcision was a foreshadowing or, or a forerunner or a type of what God really wanted, which was circumcision of the heart. In fact, Paul says this in Colossians 2. He says, In him you were also circumcised, in the putting off of the sinful nature, not with the circumcision done by 
the hands of men, but with the circumcision done by Christ. So what does this have to do with internalizing our identity? Everything. The circumcision of the heart that takes place as I put my trust in Christ brings me into a living relationship with him. It's a relationship of intimacy. I am his and he is mine. I'm loved and I'm a lover. He is my father and I am his beloved son. And as a son, I have a place of favor, as does every other son or daughter who's experienced this same circumcision of heart. This is a secure place. This is a beautiful place. This is a delightful place of intimacy with God. Internalizing their identity as God's people was an essential qualification for them to enter the promised land. And internalizing our identity as his favored sons and daughters is essential for us to move forward into the things that God has for us. Number four, to be qualified for conquest, we need to be grasping grace. Shortly after the renewal of the covenant of circumcision, God's people celebrated Passover. Passover commemorates the liberation of the Israelites from their slavery in Egypt. And the word Passover specifically refers to the passing over of the angel that brought death to all the firstborn of Egypt. As the blood of the lamb was applied to the doorposts of each home, the angel of death passed over. It was the work of God, not their own righteousness, that secured their deliverance. And of course, Passover foreshadows what happens to us. It foreshadows our deliverance and our salvation as Christians. As the blood of Jesus, or the Lamb of God, is applied to our lives, we escape death, spiritual death, which is eternal separation from God. So what does that have to do with grasping grace? Grace is what makes Christianity different than any other religion of the world. All other religions of the world are works-based. You work to earn your salvation. And of course, there's no peace of mind because no, no one ever knows if they've ever done enough. Christianity is the only faith that is built solely on the merit of the one providing salvation. When Jesus, who was God in the flesh, offered himself as the perfect sacrifice for our sins, it was his blood and his righteousness that secured our salvation. As the old hymn goes, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Our right standing before God has nothing to do with us. It has everything to do with the grace of God. There's a very familiar passage to us that talks about this. It talks about being saved by grace through faith. It's Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, but I'm going to read this from the Passion Translation. For it is only through this wonderful grace that we believed in him. Nothing we did could ever earn this salvation, for it was the gracious gift from God that brought us to Christ. So no one will ever be able to boast, for salvation is never a reward for good works or human striving. You see, the reason it's so important to grasp this understanding of grace is because it's so contrary to, to the world system to this world that we live in. 
and that we're so familiar with. We live in a performance-based world where we attain, we achieve, we're rewarded by our performance in every area of life. So if we're not careful and we're not vigilant, this performance-based way of life can easily slip into our Christianity. We begin to judge the quality of our relationship with God based on how we're performing. If we're performing poorly, then guilt and condemnation are our constant companions. We feel that God is disappointed with us, and he seems far away. If we're performing well, then we have a tendency to become proud and judgmental and, and, and self-righteous. Neither performing poorly nor performing well are a basis for a relationship with God. Neither is satisfying. Neither gives us confidence before God or intimacy with him. I became a Christian when I was 18 years old. At least that's when I got serious about my walk with the Lord. And although I understood the gospel well enough to know that I needed a Savior, what I didn't realize is that I needed a Savior every day. Every day. For years, I lived most of my Christian life under the heavy burden of a performance-based theology. I felt good about my walk with the Lord as well as I was, as long as I was doing good things, as well as, as well as I was obeying God and doing this and doing that, and I evaluated my relationship on the Lord based, of, based on how I was doing. I sang Amazing Grace thousands of times without really understanding what was so amazing about grace. It wasn't until I was 50 that I had a revelation of the grace of God that truly transformed my life and allowed me to live my faith with much greater joy and freedom. In Philip Yancey's book, What's So Amazing About Grace, he made this famous statement, and I think we've got the quote up here. Grace means there is nothing I can do to make God love me more, and there is nothing I can do to make God love me less. It means that I even I, who deserve the opposite, am invited to take my place at the table in God's family. Do not let shame and guilt and condemnation and unworthiness and a feeling that God is disappointed with you and just tolerating you rob you from the grace that is yours in Christ. Don't give it an inch of space in your life. It is completely illegal and it is completely unnecessary. Listen to what it says in Hebrews 12:22 again in the Passion Translation. We come closer to God and approach him with an open heart, fully convinced by faith that nothing will keep us at a distance from him. For our hearts have been sprinkled with blood to remove impurity, and we have been freed from the accusing conscience. And now we are clean, unstained, and presentable to God inside and out. Isn't that beautiful? This is what it means to grasp grace. Just as the Israelites needed to be reminded through a Passover celebration that they were saved by the blood of a lamb before they entered the promised land, so we need to be reminded of the effectiveness of the blood of the lamb so we can move with freedom and confidence into the promised land. Amen? Amen? Number five. To be qualified for conquest, 
We need to be pondering God's provision. The text says that the day after Passover, the manna that they received from heaven for 40 years stopped. God had been providing breakfast for Israel for 40 years. When they crossed the Jordan River, the manna stopped and they began eating from the produce of the new land. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, Moses said that God brought his people into the wilderness to teach them how to depend upon him. In the midst of a desolate place, God is the one who met their daily needs for food, for water, and for clothing. Manna was a humble reminder that God was their provider, and he provided for them in that barren wilderness for 40 years. What's interesting is in that same chapter of Deuteronomy, Moses went on to warn the people about what would happen when the manna stops and they begin feeding on the produce of the land. He said, when you eat and are satisfied and you build your homes and your flocks grow large and your silver and gold increase and all that you have is multiplied, be careful that your heart does not become proud and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. Deuteronomy 8.17 says this, You may say to yourself, My power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. But remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth. Why ponder God's provision? Because God is our provider. No matter what state or season of life you're in, whether you're living from paycheck to paycheck and barely making ends meet, or you have abundant provision, we have to remember that God is our provider. In the first 15 years of my married life with my wife Connie and our three girls, we definitely fit into that former group. We struggled to pay our bills. We counted every penny. We had a refrigerator that looked like something you pulled out of the junkyard. We used to have to borrow the work vacuum cleaner to vacuum our carpets because we couldn't afford a vacuum cleaner for a year and a half. When we give the girls a bath, the tile from the wall would fall into the tub where they were bathing. We drove rusty, high-mileage cars. In fact, one time when I was driving down the street, the girls announced with excitement as they were sitting in the back seat looking down on the floor, Daddy, we can see the road. Are you kidding me? Sure enough, it had rusted through, <laughs> and I needed to cut a piece of plywood board and put it in the stairwell so that my kids wouldn't fall through to the street. In that state of humility, we were very aware that God was our provider. In answer to our prayers, I remember one day going out to the mailbox and finding an envelope with $1,000 worth of cash. Even though we were struggling, God provided everything we needed. We never were in want of food or clothing or shelter. Now it's different. And although you wouldn't call us rich by America's standards, as the scripture says, everything has been multiplied unto us. The temptation, of course, is to forget that God is our provider, that somehow we have done this by the power and strength of our own hands. But God has taught us to be grateful for what we have. He's taught us to be generous with what we have and to always remember that he is our provider. So on the threshold of entering the promised land, when they are changing from manna 
to the produce of the land, God is reminding them to ponder his provision. And as we move forward into all that God has for us as individuals and as a church, no matter what state we're in financially, God wants us to remember that he is our provider. Number six, to be qualified for conquest, we need to be committing to the commander. Before the battle of Jericho, Joshua had an encounter with a divine being. This is taken from Joshua 5, verse 13. Now, when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went up to him and asked, Are you for us or for our enemies? Neither, he replied, but as the commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. There is a debate about whether this being that Joshua encountered was an angel or the Lord himself. Personally, I think it was the Lord himself because the Lord is referred to many times as the captain of the host, captain of the Lord's armies. And a few verses later, we see Joshua bowing down and worshiping this creature. When the apostle John did the same, when he was receiving revelation from angels and he bowed down to the angels, the angels said to him, don't do it, don't do it. We are fellow servants along with you and your brothers. Rather, worship God. Well, this being didn't do that to Joshua. He, wasn't, he didn't prevent Joshua from worshiping him. And so I believe that Joshua's posture of worship was appropriate because I believe this was the Lord himself. Now, I think it's interesting that Joshua wanted to know whose side this heavenly messenger was on. And in that sense, I don't think Joshua is any different than any of us. Whose side are you on? Are you on the Republican side or the Democrat side? Are you for impeachment or against impeachment? Are you for masks or against masks? I'm on both sides. (laughs) Are you for the Packers or are you for the Bears? (laughs) We always want to know what side you're on. You know, if we're in a conversation with somebody, it's not long before our radar is up and we're trying to figure out what side they're on. Well, when I was a kid, I used to eat, sleep, and breathe the Packers. It was in the days of Bart Starr, Jim Taylor, Paul Horning, and Ray Nitschke. If those names sound familiar to you, you're probably over 60 years old. And even though I wanted the Packers to win so badly, I couldn't bring myself to pray for a victory because I knew that there must be Christian Bear fans who were praying for a victory as well. And it just didn't make sense to me. God is on no one's side, but on his side. And he wants us to be on his side as well. That's why in the midst of such a polarized society, we need to keep our eyes on Jesus, the commander of our faith. He is the only one who is worthy of our commitment and our allegiance. This is why he taught us to pray, thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, does this mean that we shouldn't be involved in politics and that we shouldn't be involved in social justice issues? No, not at all. But as we're fighting for those causes that we deeply believe in, we still have to be Christians. Imagine that. (laughs) We still have to be nice to people. 
Our passion for our cause can't be greater than our passion for Jesus, who loves all people, regardless of their political beliefs. Just as Joshua and the people of God needed to keep their eyes on the commander of the Lord's armies, we need to keep our eyes on Jesus and not be distracted by all the enemies around us. We need to be be committed to the commander in order to enter the promised land. And finally, number seven, to be qualified for conquest, we need to be worshiping and waiting. When the commander of the army of the Lord identified himself, the scripture says that Joshua fell down in worship. This is taken from Joshua 5.14. Then Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence and asked him, What message does my Lord have for his servant? The commander of the Lord's army replied, Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. After Joshua bowed down to this heavenly commander, the first thing Joshua did was to ask for instructions. In other words, what do we do next? We crossed the river. We built an altar. We circumcised our men. We celebrated the Passover. Now it's time to advance on the enemy, right? What's the battle plan? Isn't it interesting that the only message that comes from this commander is for Joshua to take off his sandals and to worship. There aren't any other instructions. On the eve of their very first battle in the promised land, this is the one thing, the one thing that Joshua is told to do. Take off your sandals, bow down and worship. This is the battle plan. From Jericho onward, worshiping and waiting would be a key component in all of their victories. Tom mentioned this last week, and Nathan mentioned it at the beginning of of, of the service. One of the verses that God has been uh, emphasizing to us, and and we believe that he's given to us as a rhema word for this year of 2021, is ironically 2021 of 2 Chronicles. King Jehoshaphat was facing a vast army from Eden. So the Bible says that all of Israel was fasting and praying. And then it says this in 2 Chronicles 20, 21. Jehoshaphat appointed men to sing to the Lord and to praise him for the splendor of his holiness as they went out to the head of the army, saying, Give thanks to the Lord, for his love endures forever. And as they began to sing praise, the Lord set ambushes against the men of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir, who were invading Judah, and they were defeated. This is one of those battles that they didn't have to physically fight. When the army arrived at the battlefield, all they saw were dead bodies strewn all over the desert. No one escaped. Those armies were so vast and so big that it took them three days to remove all the plunder. And they didn't have to lift a finger to defeat their enemies. They did it through worship and praise. On the threshold of their very first battle against Jericho, God made a point of reminding Joshua that we go into the promised land and we defeat the enemy by having a lifestyle of worshiping and waiting. This is why worship is such a critical part of City Church's DNA. 
The battles that are ahead of us as we move into the promised land will only be won to the extent that we are willing to take our place in front of the Lord's army as his worshipers. John 4.23 says that the Father actually seeks those who will worship him in spirit and in truth. If I died today and my funeral was tomorrow, the greatest compliment anyone could ever give would be to say that I was a worshiper. Yes, I was a husband, I was a father, I was a grandfather, I was a pastor, I was someone who liked to ride motorcycles and play golf. But more than anything else, I hope that I will be remembered as a worshiper of God. Now, for much of my Christian life, I wouldn't have identified myself as a worshiper. Let me tell you a personal story. And as I'm telling this story, the worship team can come up. I was raised in a generation where showing emotion was a sign of weakness. I was in my 20s when my mom passed away. She died of breast cancer at age 50. And after the funeral was done, everybody went home and we went home. I went to a quiet place in the house. I think it was my bedroom. And I just began to, I began to weep. I was grieving for my mom. I wasn't angry. I wasn't in despair. I wasn't despondent. I was just grieving. And a few minutes into my grieving session, my, my dad heard me crying, and he came into the room, and he said, Son, stop crying. He said, We have to be strong for the family. Now, my dad wasn't being mean. All it showed is the kind of the mindset in that generation between men and emotions. But this upbringing affected the way I approached worship. I always viewed worship as kind of a nice way to set the atmosphere in a service or a nice lead-up to the main thing in a service, which was the preaching of the Word of God. Well, about 20 years ago, I had the opportunity to go on a missions trip to Uganda. And before I left, a woman with a prophetic gift came up to me and she said, Joel, I, I feel I've got a word for you. I said, okay, let me have it. She said, I feel that you're going to encounter the Lord in a new way in this missions trip. I feel that you're actually going to encounter the Lord in your emotions. I said, wow, well, thank you. So I thanked her, um, but I, I pretty quickly didn't put a lot of stock in the word, and I kind of set it aside. I didn't even think about it after that. But while we were in Uganda, it was one warm night. We were gathered together outside in a large group, and we were worshiping for the Lord, and I had an experience I'll never forget. I was so struck by how the people worshipped. Their lives were so hard and they had so little. And yet the joy and the delight of the Lord just poured out of them in exuberant worship. I remember saying to myself, these people have something I don't have. I have so much more than they do. And yet they have joy in their worship that I've never known. And at that moment, God came over me in a profound way, and I began weeping. I cried for an hour, probably more than I cried in my, cried in my entire life up until that point. And in my tears, I sensed the nearness of God. And it opened up a whole new dimension in my relationship with the Lord. And ever since that time, I've been able to experience 
through my emotions, in worship, the presence of God. And I've become a worshiper. I worship him because he's worthy. And worship allows me to experience the presence of God in a very real and tangible way. If we are a church that values the presence of God, then worship should be second nature to all of us. If God were here in all of his glory, every cell of our being would be crying out to him in worship. We certainly wouldn't be checking our cell phones. We have the blessing of knowing what it would look like to be in the presence of God. In Revelations 5, we actually have a description of what it would be like to be around the throne of God. This description is not a dream. It's not a prophetic picture. It's not someone's creative imagination. This is a revelation that God gave John about what it looks like to be in his presence. And so if you would do me a favor and just close your eyes for a moment. Because what I'm going to do is I'm going to read some amazing words that are going to get us into the very throne room of God. And I want you to visualize what this looks like. This is taken from Revelations 5. In the center around the throne were four living creatures. Day and night, they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders bow down before him who sits on the throne and worships him forever and ever. They lay down their crowns at the throne and they say, Worthy are you, O Lord, our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things and by your will they were created and have their being. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice they sang, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them singing to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. You can open your eyes. That is what is going on in heaven right now. And every time we worship, we have the honor of joining those heavenly hosts. So let's do that now. Let's stand, please, and do what we were created to do, to worship God, for he is worthy. To go into the promised land, God qualified his people for conquest by having them focus on his faithfulness by meditating on the miraculous, 
by internalizing their identity, by grasping grace, by pondering his provision, by committing to the commander, and by worshiping and waiting. And as we go into the promised land that is before us, God qualifies us for conquest by doing the same. May it be so, Lord. May it be so. Heavenly Father, thank you for being with us here this morning. Thank you for allowing us to lift up your name in praise and joining the heavenly throng. Lord, we can't wait until we can be with you to say holy, 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 along with the 24 elders and the four living creatures and all the angels who are before your throne. Lord, in this day that we're on this earth, please keep us from being distracted. Keep us from looking at the wrong things. Keep us from looking at our enemies instead of focusing on the commander of the Lord's armies. Instead of focusing on the things that you are doing to prepare us and equip us to move forward into the promised land. Lord, we don't want to be a distracted people. We don't want to be involved with things and thinking about things that aren't in line with your plans and purposes for our lives. And so, Lord, I pray that this would be a day of adjustment in our hearts. A day that when you would be emphasizing what it is we need to do to submit to you, to surrender to you, or to ask you to do in our lives so that we can co-labor with you as your church in bringing about the end-time purposes of God. So, Lord, we thank you for the honor of looking into your word this morning to see how you prepared your people to go into the promised land and to see how you're preparing us to go into the land as well. Lord, thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your generosity. And as the people leave this building, I pray that you would bless them and I pray that they would have your traveling mercies on the way home. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you. Thank you.